You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgbm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGBM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the Extreme History Headquarters, speaking via Zoom with Elizabeth During about her new book, The Chastity Plot. We're excited to talk with Elizabeth, but before we get to that, Crystal, how was your week? What's been going on? We've had a, I've had a great week and I spent some of it with you, Nancy. Yes, we finally got a chance to do something outside of just the podcast. We did, we did. So we actually went to a conference, which it was so strange to be in a conference setting after a year and a half. It was really fun, actually. And I don't always think of conferences as being fun necessarily, but yeah, it It was, was it was good to be back in a room full of people talking about big ideas. It was, it was great to see colleagues and to have a, a, a great time listening listening to new ideas and new research. And, and so it was great. It was a conference that was located not too far from where we live. So it was easy to drive over. We didn't go to the whole conference, unfortunately, but it was called uh, Frozen Pass Glacial and Ice Patch Archaeology. And it was hosted by the Institute of Alpine and Arctic Research at the University of Colorado Boulder, also by the Alpine Science Institute in Central at Central Wyoming College. And it was a great conference that the day we got to see anyway. So yeah. we had a wonderful time listening to people speak about um, Alpine archaeology. And hopefully the reason that we went is to find some more people to interview for this podcast. So yes, we were scouting yeah. out yeah, for we scouting. interesting topics. Yeah. Um, I just want to shout out to Weber Greiser because I yeah. think he might also have been a sponsor for that. And um, Dr. Craig Lee, who we've had on the program before, along yeah. with Shane Doyle and Ian Van Coller, talking about ice patch archaeology. And Craig Lee really pulled the whole conference together, mm-hmm. it seems like, which was great. And we found some amazing uh, research going on of all these different um, sight lines, cairns, um, uh, ways people were living in and around and using alpine environments. Um, and Um, not unlike so many other societies around the world, whether it's in South America, in Peru, the Incas, all these other places, mountains have a special place, sometimes are are sacred. Mm -hmm. And so that idea of the sacred, as well as very practical use of these ice, ice patches by animals and then people that were coming up to hunt them. And sometimes people were also making camps up there. So we're learning um, so much more about portions of the world and the ways people lived in them than we knew before, because now archaeologists are climbing mountains. Right. And, And they're looking at the broader landscapes of those places. And so that was really interesting as well, not just looking at the ice patches themselves, and looking just for artifacts on the ice patch, but going beyond the ice patch and really looking at the the larger landscape and 
that's when they're starting to see these cairns and, and seeing that these cairns of rocks, these big stacks of rocks have little viewing windows in them. And if you look through that viewing window, you see another stack of rocks, another cairn, you know, could be two miles away, you know? It's, so amazing. it's amazing. And they're either pointing Research. you towards a peak mm -hmm. or a glacier or another cairn. Mm -hmm. And it's um, a fascinating way of perhaps communicating across many kilometers up there mm -hmm. uh, and guiding people. And then there's also drive lines for, mm -hmm. for hunting animals and mm -hmm. things. So there's so much interesting research going on that we were fascinated with. And they're having to do um, really complicated work camping at high altitude, yeah. using helicopters, helicopters and drones yeah. and all sorts of things. So yeah. um, so more of that will be coming on the podcast, I'm right. sure. Right. Yeah, we've we'll, had some we'll of that. Invite some of those folks on to talk about their research. Right. Okay. So we should turn our attention back to Elizabeth yes, now. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so welcome, Elizabeth. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a, a pleasure to join you. So we want to start off by telling our listeners a little about you. Elizabeth During teaches philosophy, aesthetics, and gender studies at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn. She is also trained as a theologian. Author of The Chastity Plot, she has written on Antonin Artaud, Simone Weil, George Eliot, André Breton, Hegel, Freud, and Brisson. Her current project is a book called She Did It in Her Sleep, Comatose Rape and the Problem of Knowledge another history of the many ways in which heterosexuality gets things wrong. Welcome, Lisbeth. We always begin the podcast by asking our guests how they became interested in the subject of history, and in your case, theology and philosophy. So please tell us when and how you were first drawn to philosophy and gender studies through this lens of history. Um, well, thank you. No, it's 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 something I had never thought about. So I'm I'm very glad to be given um, you know the push, um, really, which took me to thinking about my own history uh, as well as um, sort of my dependence on historical density, on historical stories, um, on this kind of continual sort of engagement with the past, and yet never really contributing to the proper historical study of it. So I have to confess. Uh, I don't do history. I take advantage of other people's uh, work. I can sometimes get a bit stroppy about people, um, you know, using philosophy and you know, quoting a bit here and there without actually, you know, doing the hard work. Um, but I'm very glad that um, you know, amazing historical research now exists, especially uh, about the periods I'm interested in: late antiquity around the Eastern Mediterranean and early Christianity has really been the site uh, for some of the you know, most creative, most uh, exciting recent work, especially a uh, work done by feminist historians. And there has been a real renaissance, <laughs> a renaissance of medieval studies um, done by um, feminist critics. So I think if it wasn't for that, uh, I wouldn't have been able to do the work I do and I wouldn't have had um, the inspiration. But I had a kind of more, you know, silly story um, about my attraction, maybe not silly, about my attraction to history um, and I think it's because of a romantic streak so that for, you know, real serious historians and archaeologists, I, I wonder if there's a romanticism and an exoticism uh, that mo motivates um, you as, as well. Um, but I think for me, it really started happening as a child, um, you know, almost an extension of interest in, in myth, in fairy tales, in, in the magical and wanting wanting to be somewhere else than the ordinary, uh, to be somewhere else from, from the everyday. 
Um, and, and for me, uh, the past kind of has that, that aura, you know, that it has a sort of detail and concreteness, uh, but it's always something you can't quite live in and you can't quite uh, make your own. So, so I, like, I like that mystery of it. Um, and I like the fact that you need concrete things to get at the past. Like, you know, you were talking about the materiality of, of stones and um, mountains and deserts. Um, but for people who are dabblers in history, it's the accumulation of, you know, monuments, uh, libraries, museums, uh, works of art, um, the way in which memories get concretized. Um, and that I think philosophers are, can be, you know, tremendously envious of because our work uh, tends to be very abstract. Uh, and to me, that's never been the uh, um, appealing side of philosophy. I've, I've never felt uh, completely at home um, in a domain of, you know, where the, the logic, the argument, uh, the kind of developing a view uh, is, is the main event. So I think I've retained this sort of nostalgia um, for a path not taken and a nostalgia for the past, you know, almost in the sense that I believe in history as our, you know, collective uh, way of, um, you know, touching on that dream. Um, the dream that there is something there which, you, which you'll never totally get, but somehow mm -hmm. you have an investment in it. Um, and I always think of Freud's fascination with the image of the past. Like, you know, he, he talks about the dream as the royal road to the unconscious, but he also thinks about, you know, at least the histories that, um, that fascinate him, you know, Greco-Roman history, uh, Egyptian history, you know, so-called primitive histories as really the symbols uh, for the unconscious, you know, like, um, like our human ghosts, you know, our human, you know, imagined uh, pasts. So that's a little bit speculative. Um, why I first started thinking about the themes that I think came together in the chastity plot uh, really comes from, you know, when I was a six-year-old and went to Florence with my parents and we spent a couple of months there. Um, and I was just overwhelmed um, by spending time in the Uffizi and the Pitti Palace. Uh, and to me, it just seemed like, you know, all the, the illustrations in, in my magical books had, had come to life. Um, but this also drew me in an aesthetic way um, toward the history of Christianity and toward its particular images of, um, of perfection. Um, and that's, I think that, you know, weirdly enough, chastity uh, for all its you know, abuses, uh, for all the kind of um, violence it does to the human psyche and to human societies, and particularly, of course, you know, as we'll talk about uh, to women, um, I think this fantasy of a, you know, an ethereal disembodied state of something that perhaps we can, you know, touch on in art, um, but when we touch on it in, in, in you know, psychological experience and social experience, uh, we get into very dangerous terrain. So I, I think that, that the idea of perfection uh, has, a, has a lot to answer for. And that's you know, both my attraction to history because I think history is messy, um, it's mixed up, it's porous, it doesn't strive for the kind of uh, ethereal perfection that philosophy strives for. Um, and I think also my you know, coming back to the notion of sexual purity and you know sexual violation is a way of coming to terms uh, with this um, you know kind of dual attraction and repulsion of of the idea of perfection. Um, that's so interesting to hear your perspective and what what drew you here. Um, I have to say, when we first um, were uh, introduced to your book, 
um, I thought right away, ooh, what a sexy topic. And then I kind of laughed at myself. <laughs> but it, it, it is because you can't talk about chastity without talking about sex and without talking about maybe in a fetishized way, not having sex or avoiding sex or transgressing that. And so it's it's definitely always comes with that that sizzle, you know? And and this question I'm I'm supposed to ask right now is supposed <laughs> to summarize your book. But before I do that, I, I feel like I also need to um, kind of reveal my background in preconceived ideas. And as I was, we were chatting earlier, I mentioned to you, you know, I, I grew up Catholic in the Catholic church, but pretty early on realized this probably wasn't for me, even before I could have that recognition as to exactly why. But there is that sense that you should be chaste and you should be a virgin upon marriage. You get that really early and you and you get this idea of Mary as this virgin, this ideal of perfection, right? And you and at some point you're like, okay, well, was she really a virgin before she had Jesus and after? Like, I don't know if that's a thing. And historically people say no, but regardless, when you're in the church, you, you don't ask those questions. You know, you're just being presented with these ideals. And um and there is sometimes this uh, that you know you learn all about these martyrs and these saints and there's this pressure of perfection which i don't think i quite really realized until you just started talking about it and and what what became intriguing for me was the idea to just go ahead and become a nun because in some ways it was just easier to try to come up close to that ideal. And that's something I don't think I've ever said out loud that as a young girl, I was like, I should just become a nun because it would be the easiest way to then see yourself as a good and moral person was that you would just give all this up and devote your life to God and to heck with everything else. And that's, I felt like what the church put on you. And I don't even know if they're actively trying probably, but, but regardless, that's what I took from all of that. And then just to finish up my little, you know, tangent here, my stress dreams all throughout high school, my stress dream was that I was suddenly eight months pregnant mm. and I didn't know how I got there because I never had sex. Mm. And so that's what I think the Catholic church did to me with these concepts that you talk about of this idea of Christianity and chastity and, and all of those associated ideas. So I'm, I'm excited because I feel like you've unpacked my psyche very nicely and neatly. <laughs> so um, we'll go back to now um, me trying to give a little bit of a summary before I ask you to explain what the chastity plot is. Um, so your book, um, you tell the story of this concept of chastity you know, through time and history, but mainly through Christianity b before it, and then Christianity's emergence and, and evolution, and really this sort of um, thread of Western civilization, you know, from the Greeks all the way to where we are today. Um, you talk about the ideal of chastity, how it has been both honored in some ways and despised in others. Um, the obsession at various times and ways people have had with chastity, how it plays different roles in many cases for men and women, and then the powerful role it has in sustaining the patriarchy um, and the double standards that come with that. And um, also the inherent contradictions um, that come with a chastity being an ideal of a religion, because if everybody was, then that's the end of that, as you point out so, so well. 
Um, but that we've had myths that relate to chastity that predate that. I love when you talk about Artemis and this idea that women could be chaste, but they were sort of outside society in the woods and free and, and rebellious, but there, you couldn't be both chaste and inside society. And that kind of seems to have held even with the establishment of, of um, monks and nunneries and, and all those kinds of things too. So there's, there's so much about it that's um, uh, sustaining for the religion, but problematic for uh, society. So um, with that sort of um, winding introduction, you know, you've examined this ideal of chastity through literature, religion, cultural history in so many different forms. You've looked at Shakespeare, you've looked at 18th century novels, Greek tragedies, Puccini operas, biblical disciples, um, all sorts of aspects of, of the mystery and the mystique and the violence that comes along with it, different approaches by elite versus middle classes in medieval times. Um, so it's fascinating and, and very well done with a thread that ties it all together. But so let's just start with the term, the chastity plot. And um, I know there's other subplots we'll get to in the next question, but just to start, um, tell our listeners what the chastity plot is as you see it. Thank you. Uh, that's a very good way to frame it. Um, the chastity plot, the title, is of course an allusion to the marriage plot, uh, which is a much more popular and uh, pervasive uh, narrative about how you know we tie together our, our private happiness with notions of um, social respectability and, and integration in the social, that when the marriage plot works, um, the, these rebellious characters that might be off in the woods, like you know the, the Greek followers of, of Artemis, uh, are then domesticated. And, and indeed, in, in, in Greek marriage plots, this is definitely the language that's always used, that you take this wild creature into your home, um, you being the, you know, the, the, the man, the husband, the one who has a greater stake um, in rationality and also in the social order, um, needs to mold and form this raw material into something we might then say is, is the domestic woman. And so that virginity in that sense is always at odds uh, with the marriage plot. Um, virginity in some ways is kind of defiant uh, against the marriage plot. And that's something that I do, I guess it did strike me very strongly in writing the book and doing the research, the incompatibility, um, as you were saying, between the religion, Christianity as a social institution, as an institution that wanted to continue, that wanted to have a kingdom in this world. It needs to reproduce, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> has to reproduce. It can't just sort of, let's go all be all, all the, the world. Priests I mean, they, aren't they, gonna they, do it, I know. I know. <laughs> you know like how many, how many Christians would be enough? I mean, had we really reached the maximum <laughs> of humans in the world? Um, because, you know, God after all did say, mm. be fruitful and multiply, but those were different times. Mm. And that now maybe we have achieved this moment where we can say thank you very much, but we'll just we'll just give it back. Um, so that that idea of rejecting the reproductive imperative, uh, the conjugal imperative, was certainly always there in the religious version of of the chastity plot. And in that sense, I think it's not compatible um, with the marriage plot. In another sense, the chastity plot is like just a plot against desire. I mean, against mm -hmm. sexuality, against, you know, Aphrodite, if you like, um, wherever there's, you know, erotic impulses, which of course are on the side of life and continuation, um, the chastity plot is saying, no, you know, restrain yourself, withhold, 
uh, deny, um, almost like create a space of, of negativity um, and silence and absence within the psyche. So the chastity plot really in, in many ways, and especially in the spiritual context, um, was an attempt to transform human material, make some other kind of being. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why a lot of these early um, church fathers and theologians who were, you know, just like in, fell in love with chastity, um, always use this image of the angels, mm -hmm. that, you know, there were these other beings, um, maybe they were there before us, and <laughs> they made a few mistakes, and therefore God had to repair it. Um, but they could live uh, and worship God and not have a body, right? Um, so why couldn't we? You know, what what kind of um, eternal, you know, punishment is this fleshiness, this carnality? Why can't we be liberated from that? So I think the the defiant and in some ways um, maybe heroic in this kind of vainly uh, anti-worldly way um, side of the chastity plot uh, is really refusal of social continuation um, and social value. And so it's a very strange thing to expect to be universal, to expect to kind of uh, convert, convert the population. The other side of the chastity plot is, is the one that I think every feminist um, you know, who knows what she's doing um, must have encountered the idea that the demand for um, female modesty uh, even absence of desire, you know, to be able to kind of withhold, to say no, um, is necessary uh, to be a good person, to be mm -hmm. a good woman. Mm -hmm. uh, even came up to the point of, in the 19th century, uh, this notion that femininity was passionless, that women just didn't suffer uh, from sexual desire, was a way to naturalize what had always been uh, a command um, on women, and also the only formulation of female virtue. I mean, this is extraordinary that when people talk about virtue in relation to women, that's all they mean. Right. You know, virtue mm -hmm. for men is courage, is wisdom, is honesty. I don't know, variety of different virtues in, in, in different professions. But it's as if women had only one profession and their only way of being honorable was to preserve themselves um, from sexual scandal. So okay. that's, you know, I think it's pretty obvious how this upholds, as you say, the, the patriarchal double standard. Um, and also created a contradiction, um, not just for women, but for men. You know, if, if it was natural for women to be, um, you know, if not sexless, at least um, not as vibrantly and um, assertively and enthusiastically sexual, then what were men doing, heterosexual men, in expecting women to share their beds? Was this an insult? Was this a violation? Was, and I think when you talk about Catholicism, you know, the young Catholic men of, of, of my you know, acquaintance did suffer from this, the sense that um, if if they felt sexual and if they, you know, talked a woman into going to bed with them, um, had they, you know, committed a, you know, a dreadful, unforgivable, a kind of outrage. Uh, yeah. So this this shadow over, you know, human sexuality um, really is one of the, you know, pretty obvious uh, results of the chastity plot. Um, so that's, you know, the two sides, I suppose, the the side that. Uh, conspired against the equality of women and the independence of women and even women's awareness of their own sexuality. And then this other kind of religious, you know, as Jesus says, um, there are some who are made eunuchs, some who are born eunuchs. I wonder who they are for them. Right, that right. <laughs> some who are made eunuchs for the, some who become eunuchs for the, Christ, for the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. um, and that's very mysterious. It's this sort of elite possibility uh, for the few, for those with a certain kind of vocation, 
um, for those who can embrace ascetic renunciation, because I don't think you can be chaste in the Christian sense without also being, you know, poor, humble, mm-hmm. um, you know, silent. And this is often forgotten in the obsession with, you know, sexual virtue being the sole marker of, of Christian excellence. You've got to give up the rest too. You know, it has to be um, against materialism if you're going to be against these other social institutions. Right, exactly. Um, so those sides, I think, the, the trying to mesh them together expose the contradictions, um, but also expose to me how how powerful um, this ideal was. So you you kind of touched there on the eunuch, um, but let's let's dive a little bit deeper into the eunuch's plot. Some of these subplots that you have, and one mm. of them is the eunuch's plot, and the other one is the maiden plot. Mm. So um, tell us a little bit about those two, two as well. And you know, we don't have too many eunuchs <laughs> running around in society today. So definitely I definitely not that we're I aware think, of. Yeah, I know <laughs> not that we're aware. Of, so I think that plot might have, no. may have failed. But <laughs> can you tell us more? We've got, we've got the, uh, what do you call it? The, the incels, the involuntary celibates. Perhaps they would be better off if they were eunuchs. You can, there was a, a you know, quite a significant eunuch in the Game of Thrones. Um, yes. And I uh, can't remember which one that was, you know, the classic role of the, you know, the court advisor. Um, you can be powerful, um, mm-hmm. you know, in a court if you're a eunuch because you don't have your own um, children um, to be, you know, um, you know, trying to stir up favors for. Um, but no, clearly the the eunuch's role, the eunuch's future is is impossible. I mean, incompatible with you know life as we know it. Um, but those who, you know, who thought they could sign on to this you know, superior, more exalted sort of life. Um, I I think there's always been um, room in in many religious traditions uh, for the, you know, exceptional vocation, uh, whether it's otherworldly, whether it's, you know, through meditation, through um, extreme acts of of charity and deprivation. Um, What's curious is is why absence of sex uh, was seen to be uh, a way of becoming stronger, a way of becoming um, more purified and enlightened. What, what strikes me as very odd is in the subplots, the eunuchs plot, I think we can see this in, in the tradition of the church of, um, you know, initially it was only bishops and those higher up uh, had to be celibates. And then generally it became, you know, a uniform requirement. Um, but, you know, one of the conditions of sainthood um, obviously is to subscribe to the, to the eunuchs plot. Um, and it worked for women. It worked for women um, who did recognize that this was a way to kind of have some sort of independence um, even to have, um, you know, social and and sometimes economic, strongly economic power, um, by breaking away from the expectation that they would be married and reproduce, uh, and instead, um, you know, choosing the religious life of celibacy, and sometimes not by taking orders, um, living like the Beguines did, you know, on the margins uh, of a religious institution. This did provide a kind of power and freedom uh, for a number of medieval Catholic women, and I think women in other religious traditions, um, that went away with the Reformation. So if we're thinking Mm -hmm. about different chastity plots, I think the post-Lutheran plot where chastity becomes married chastity, you know, fidelity, modesty, but also for both men and women. That, that sounds um, like the worst world of everything, yeah. right? Chastity yep. within marriage or yeah. fidelity. That just yeah. sounds awful. The Protestant. It's an really not any fun. Yeah. You don't, yeah. You don't think any of that. No, no. 
uh, all the guilt, but you know, none of the, none of the pleasure, none of, none of the prestige. Um, right. Yeah, the maiden's plot is is the um, I guess more related to the marriage plot, and that's you mentioned the the premium on uh, women's women being um, virgins at marriage. Um, so that interest in the the maidens you know, fight against temptation, uh, the maiden's um, resistance to the libertine or the rake or the seducer as uh, a classic sort of narrative mechanism or, or engine of the novel. Um, and of course, of all kinds of popular popular forms from, from you know, movies to opera um, to, you know, the visual arts, um, the, you know, the, the, the conflict or the struggle between, you know, lust um, and innocence or, or, or lust and resistance. It, it, you know, it, it can't fail, but, but be interesting. Um, so that's another form of the plot where virginity um, is a sort of, is something we invest in, we're fascinated by, we both want it to, to continue and, and we want it to be, to be lost. You know? Yeah, I think there is a fascination um, for sure with that. And, it, and you, you make a point in there that it, it becomes almost a commodity that a, a woman can trade, a, a middle-class woman can trade with uh, somebody wealthier and elite and move up classes if, if she stays. But then there's also, you know, this risk that um, she drives men so wild with her refusals that um, she can end up violently defiled and raped and, and things so that there's, um, there's, there's so many ways in which that can go wrong. And, and to me, it's, it's sort of counter to this idea of love. Maybe it's, it's happily ever after in the sense that she has a secure marriage and a station in society, but it's not really as tied to passionate love. So I'm just interested in how things change over time. I wanted to ask you before we move on with another question for your book. Um, one of the, the societies I've, I've taught about when we talk about sexuality in an, in an introductory anthropology class is them. Um, the Sworn Virgins of Albania. And I didn't know if you'd ever heard of this group of women who it fits so nicely with what you've talked about in your book. And this is, this is very um, recently in the last century that many women um, have practiced becoming a sworn virgin where what they end up doing is essentially behaving and dressing as men and agreeing to be chased for the rest of their lives. And a lot of women say they prefer it because then they don't have to be the wife of someone else and perform all these duties and they have control and freedom and mobility. And so they choose to just live as a man. They can sit out publicly and smoke cigarettes and do all this stuff. And they just um, get that opportunity. And so this anthropologist interviewed many of them about um, most of them could make the choice. Some of them, their families had them become these sworn virgins because they needed a male in the family to do certain things because some other men died and, and that sort of thing. So it's definitely that way of, um, you know, taking the patriarchy and making it work for you, you know, like without violating these, these customs and these ideals of, of their faith and Christianity and their social customs. So it's an incredibly complicated and interesting the ways in which we do these gymnastics to, to, um, allow people to have some freedoms or not without violating these other ideals. You know, it's so, as you keep saying, like, even if the chastity plot hasn't won against the marriage plot, it's, it's still so powerful in, in governing the way so many people make their choices and, and act in society. Um, 
I didn't know if you had any reaction to that. No, it's 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 a wonderful example. I, I realized like I yeah I did know about the um, Albanian um, cases and had thought of them, especially in terms of um, there were debates among the um, church fathers of whether virgins were a third sex because this mm. was was broadly right, right, right. that perhaps for a woman to um, renounce marriage um, and childbearing um, wouldn't this promote her. Uh, because it was always <laughs> perceived to be, you know, a step up, um, and certainly take her outside of 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 the you know the the constraints of her sex. Um, and I think, you know, obviously feminist theologians uh, who work on Christianity have been, you know, strongly um, attracted to this, and have also, um, you know, spoken about the ways in which, um, you know, the, these, as you say, some some of the families um, had, you know, strong reasons to want their daughters. Uh, to lead this life. I mean, it was uh, in, in, the, in the Western tradition, Western Europe, uh, prestige. Uh, it was also a way to save money because <laughs> yes, you didn't have to yes. come up with a dowry um, to pass your daughter on. Um, and these women, um, sometimes like some of the followers of St. Jerome, you know, earlier on, you know, fourth and fifth century were women from the uh, upper um, classes of the, of the late Roman Empire who brought their whole estates, you know, who brought their fortunes into the church. So the church also had its own reason um, for um, <laughs> seducing uh, women to the cause of virginity, because um, then they would es establish and endow um, institutions. Uh, but it can't be denied that it did offer possibilities without, um, you know, tearing the house of marriage to the ground. Uh, it did show you know, some of the cracks in it and also exposed um, the particular ways in, in which it, it alienated um, women. Um, but men too, the attraction of, of, of men to the ascetic life in Christianity, um, often you'll find this use of an old trope from you know, Greco-Roman philosophy that the, the life of the mind is incompatible with the domestic sphere. Um, that you really can't have the, the you know, the freedom to, to perfect yourself um, if you have the responsibilities of family and children and, and a wife. Right. So this was also used um, to attract, you know, men to the, the, the celibate vocation, celibate vocation, but to attract um, women. Um, I think there's another point that you made that I was particularly, oh, the androgynous. Yeah, you know, I find this very interesting that they yeah. were really only allowed, the chastity went hand in hand with all, all the benefits of being male, only if you renounce then all your femininity as well. So you were you were being chaste, but not a chaste woman. You were being a chaste man, you know. So there was there was all these freedoms you would gain, but this big thing you have to give up. And it, to me, that was so fascinating because when I first read the title, "The Sworn Virgins of Albania," I was imagining these lovely women all maybe sequestered in this, you know. And and then ultimately, you're like. No, they're just sitting there with yeah. these short haircuts, dressed like men with a cigarette. And you wouldn't know from a photograph whether that that person was born male or female. There was such an androgyny, you know, there. Yeah. And I, I think if from anthropology's perspective, as you mentioned, like this idea that, um, you know, really most societies have more than just the binary male, female, the idea that there are, there are third or other genders. I think that's usually the case in which it's taught within that field. Um, and I, I wonder if also the church just kind of struggling with people that didn't fit neatly into those categories, whether people were homosexual or, or what, you know, that there, there had to be other ways in which they could be also Christian and not break 
some kind of rules. And maybe chastity was a way to kind of deal with homosexuality and all sorts of other androgyny and things like that, that people may have been experiencing. Yeah, certainly the, the you know, affectionate love um, uh, between, you know, spiritual brothers, um, you know, fellow religious, and I'm thinking here more of letters that are exchanged between um, men, um, did use, you know, the language of, of, of passion and desire, uh, which was kind of permissible um, and indeed, you know, you know distinguished, uh, it was a sign of distinction uh, to have uh, these intense feelings of love towards somebody that uh, you were connected to through your religious order. Um, whereas then, then there were, um, I don't know what you call it, like persecutions of, you know, lesbianism, I think really attracted mm -hmm. this kind of policing um, in, in nunneries, which I don't um, hear that so much about, you know, in the um, early uh, orders, um, especially when, when aristocratic men um, you know, took holy orders, uh, then they were certainly permitted a kind of very lofty platonic language of of, of love and, and attraction. Um, where obviously women, um, you know, weren't weren't suitable for that kind of idealization. Um, the the androgynous character of, of virginity is is interesting. I mean, in the the other way in which the the non you know not the Christian virgin per se, but her her <laughs> watered down um, simulacrum, the you know the virgin of romance, quest romance and fantasy. Um, who is the, you know, the, the fragile um, but solitary woman um, wandering in a landscape um, who can turn um, the rapacious desires of the, um, of the villain um, to not just by, you know, the power of her innocence. So there's this other idea, not androgynous per se, but it's as if there's certain kinds of women so pure and also a few men like Galahad in the story of the Holy Grail, who are so pure that the, the world's deviousness and the world's, you know, rapacity um, just has no purchase on them. Mm -hmm. So there's this other idea of the not quite androgynous, but sort of outside society, almost like the eternal child, um, which I think is also a, another way of investing in the sexless person. The sexless person has just, you know, is not going to continue in the world. Um, so somehow they're already like a taste of, of another kind of life. Mm -hmm. But that may be my fairy tale background. Yeah, I was just going to say that reminds me of women in fairy tales, you know, mm -hmm. the, um, certain women in fairy tales, for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're sort of beyond. Yeah, yeah. it's it's yeah. and I think that goes back to your idea that almost in the afterlife is what Christianity has always sort of said, not only angels don't have the sexuality and the desire and the corporal body, you know, to, to have those desires, but, but that what's what will happen to us when we also get to the hereafter, we will no longer have that. And, and it's so funny to me that that's something that we would all strive for and be happy with. So there's like this, this Christianity comes part and parcel with almost like this, this hatred of our passionate desires that seem to be the, the cause. I mean, the seven deadly sins are all tied up in that kind of stuff too. And two of the commandments have to do with coveting or having adultery. You know, there's so much that's about not acting on and wishing we didn't have those desires. And yet that's what keeps the population going. And I guess if you channel it into marriage and that becomes such an important thing, but I want to move on to the most famous chaste sovereign we've had, which is Queen Elizabeth I. And I, I want you to unpack her for us because um, incredibly powerful and 
I mean, she she sort of has to, I don't know, marry God and remain chaste to really fully enact and keep her powers. I, w- I want you to talk a little bit about your thoughts on her. Yeah, I'm, I'm continually um, astounded by her. I mean, how she got away with it. I know. She, right? She's so canny. Um, you know, she's so good at, at rhetoric and you know, using her own representation, you know, using the the language of eroticism to both kind of invite, um, you know, investment and you know, almost like, um, you know, uh, attempts to capture her, attempts to to conquer her, uh, and then to refuse it. So she's definitely using this whole kind of um, courtly love uh, romance to to elevate her position, but to free her from the responsibilities of, of marriage and the household and childbearing. I mean, this is very rare uh, for a woman. If she had, yes, if she could have led a religious life, but I don't think she had any interest in that. I mean, she was, you know, kind of pragmatically religious, um, certainly very, you know, very lettered, um, very erudite. Um, but she didn't, you know, she really thought religion had no role in the public sphere. <laughs> she's, she's, you know, she should be brought back for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> um, but she, she was, you know, quite aware that to use the mantle of Diana and then to, you know, a little bit more tactfully um, use the mantle of the Virgin Mary um, would give her this freedom because everybody is pressuring her. Um, you have to marry. I mean, this is dynastic. This is political. You know, it's... <laughs> You know, like I said, but it's a mess. Um, European politics. When has it not been a mess? Um, maybe in the in post Second World War. Um, but the way it can be held together is by these, you know, um, often very short-lived alliances, and marriage, um, and marrying off your children, not just yourself, is a way to do this. This is what what Victoria did. I mean, this is you know the ultimate, um, you know, fertile mama. Um, but Elizabeth is going to be the woman who doesn't have children. So she leaves the succession in complete doubt, uh, which has already been a disaster uh, for her father and, and, you know, for basically 60 years before her and says, you know, tough, I'm going to be the Phoenix uh, when I die, you know, something will come from my ashes. Um, so she has to be very canny in both kind of making sure she can preserve the masculine form of, of sovereignty and authority. So she can talk, she does talk about herself in both sexes. Um, and yet the feminine desirability. So she uses a lot of the myths around um, uh, virginity um, to, you know, to get her through this. It's also a time when obviously there are pretty, you know, instrumental and, and some just pragmatic reasons, strategic reasons to go for Protestantism in England. Um, much of the population isn't going with you. Another strong um, group of the population is much more <laughs> radical than you are and thinks, you know, obviously you're going to end up with this, uh, this Anglican compromise, which is not going to satisfy, you know, the real passions that, that led to the Reformation. So she's got to be very careful in, in mediating that um, and kind of in taking on a bit of the aura of, you know, the mother of God, um, the one mother that you, that you can't have as a wife. Um, she allows, you know, that kind of Catholic um, vestige uh, to still be present, but she makes sure that it's her image, uh, her likeness, uh, that's going to be erected almost like a cultic object. Um, when some of her, um, some of her servants, some people uh, went around um, looking for images of the Virgin. So if you had an icon or a painting and you were caught with it in your house, uh, you'd get into very serious trouble. Um, and I think not just because, you know, you're supposed to be Protestant, but because it's a rival um, to your queen, to your sovereign. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Um, so no, she's she's astonishing in all sorts of ways, but she never lets other women anywhere near this. Um, so this is not going to become a practice, although right. they could do. Uh, it's something that she's unique. Mm-hmm. I think even more unique than the Virgin Mary. I'm going to mm. really be heretical mm. there. Mm. She's she also has to be careful not to be mistaken for an, you know the, an Amazon type, right. um, because mm. there's still the you know the memory of of um, you know Saint Joan. Um, the great right. enemy of the English, who is a military uh, virgin. Yeah. Um, and, you know, who's the one I would have been much more, when I was a child, I didn't want to be the virgin where I wanted to be her. Yeah. But I think Elizabeth must have thought, mm, I, got an, I can't go there. Yeah. 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 Well, you're going to have a longer life as a, as yeah. a monarch than you <laughs> do fighting in battle. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a quick station break. You're listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. We're speaking today with Elizabeth During about her new book, The Chastity Plot. Well, Elizabeth is fascinating. And I think what is even more fascinating is kind of where she came from with Mm. um, King Henry VIII or her father and then Anne Boleyn. And so she came out of that whole situation and then just kind of flipped it all and moved forward in her own way and was able to, like you said, just keep it going, you know, just kind of, um, you know, letting everyone think she was going to marry, but never really marry. And she's one of those women that I would love to, if I had, if I could go back in time, I would like to talk to her. (laughs) I'd have a few questions for her, but um, let's, let's fast forward a little bit into the 20th century, the early 20th century in the Victorian era. And you talk in your book about the suffrage movement and how this was really linked to celibacy as well. And for example, um, some of the leaders of the movement, including Susan B. Anthony, took vows of celibacy, which I had no idea of that. But then after I read that in your book, I thought, oh, my gosh, yes, you know, she never married. She um, she had good friendships, uh, friendships with women, but uh, she did take that vow of celibacy. So can you tell us why these women chose this path and what were the reasons? Yeah, no, it's a great question and, and a, a complicated one. Um, and I think, you know, what you could then you know, even redescribe as a celibacy plot um, was quite strategic uh, for political reasons. Um, for a number of women in the you know the latter part of the of the 19th century and early 20th century, um, it did allow them to to form communities um, you know outside of marriage and, and the home, um, and that you know for various um, unified under, under under various campaigns um, abolition, but also temperance, mm-hmm. and so we have this this you know this the usual uncanny mixture of um, you know feminist protests. And, um, you know, another form of, of moral outrage that um, alcohol um, and prostitution uh, were weakening um, the moral fiber um, of, of society um, and also the, the position of women, you know, the subordination of women was also part of this moral corruption. So to, so to mix those together rather than, you know, later feminism um, tried to push back, you know, in another direction and, and, and to get on its side, the, the sexual revolution, the the association of, of political reform with, you know, uh, sexual reform. But I think those those um, earlier earlier members of the women's movement um, did find it very um, kind of very both very useful and very clarifying 
um, to you know be be public about their um, their break uh, from the the conjugal system from the from the marriage system um, and indeed it allowed you know it allowed um, early women in 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 tertiary education uh, to do things they couldn't otherwise do. It was very difficult to be a married woman and go to university, uh, to be a professor, to be a doctor. So, you know, you, you, know, you do see a whole little, you know, kind of run of, um, you know, whether it's strategic, whether it's principled, um, but, you know, exiles and, and um, rebels against marriage. Um, what also interests me is something, you know, not quite as attractive, which is the association of um, femininity, like female nature, uh, with a higher moral tone. Um, and that wasn't uh, at all the case. I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not a historian, um, but I hear much more, you know, in, in you know, medieval literature and, um, you know, going on to Shakespeare uh, about the lasciviousness of women. Um, and women, you know, they're, they're lighter character. Of course, they're going to be, um, you know, kind of more the, the, the victim of their urges and, and more, um, more lustful. So it's like the wiser, rational men who've got to give them rules. You know, you get this in the Wife of Bath's Tales in, in, in Chaucer. Um, but then in the, towards the middle of the 18th century, you get this new language about female modesty. Not that it's something that has to, that women have to be forced into and, and you know crippled by, but this is natural for them. Women are naturally less sexual, um, more modest, more timorous. You know, they 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 just blush in any time you mention it. Where do you think that comes from, Elizabeth? Do you think it is it coming from um philosophers is it coming out of literature is it coming from yeah. the, where is this idea that their nature you know because you have rousseau and other people like mm -hmm. speculating on the nature of of humans and men and humanity and and where where does that shift and where yeah. does it happen then yeah, do you why? think why no you're certainly right that, that it, there's really much more fuss about what human nature is um at least in, in Europe in the 18th century, I suspect it's also you know finding yourself in a in a much larger globe than you imagined, mm -hmm. um, and thinking no, there there's a you know anthropology there is a variety of human conditions, right? The variety of human societies, um, and you know what we assume to be the case isn't always the case. So that requires you know looking a little bit more closely on, on what you think of uh, as as your own template, your own kind of cultural um, you know infrastructure. Um, so there's a need to specify um, not just the requirements of female and male existence, but to justify them as um, you know these are these are not these are reasonable. So that nature has nature for you know an enlightenment thinker. You're going to blame philosophy here. Has to be rational. <laughs> yeah. Has to be rational. Yeah. Um, so if it's provided to sexes, there must be a reason for this. Um, and you know moral institutions, social institutions. Um, must also be natural. Uh, they must come out of some some natural need and satisfy it. Um, so then, somehow, we find that the sexes, the genders, are much more polarized than they used to be. I mean, for the for the Greeks, they're just you know higher and lower versions of the same thing, right? And some oh, women can be higher. You know, <laughs> so you get a few women. Aristotle says this. There are going to be a few women who are better than you know most of the men, but in general, there's going to be more men that are better than most of the women. But it's just the same stuff, you know. And then in the 18th century, you get it with Rousseau, um, and then they tried to find scientific reasons for it, um, you know, looking at organs, you know, and looking yeah. at, you know, menstruation and so on in, in, the, in the 20th century to say, no, 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 this is innate, this is intrinsic, um, this is, you know, that there's a kind of a, a natural order of things, why women have to be as they are, why men have to be as they are. And then I think the, the 
this extreme polarization of, of the libido so that, you know, male sexuality is then uncontrollable, you know, rapacious, brutal, and women are going to be the taming influence, but it's easier for them to be so. I think that's still in this early feminist movement, and it, it worries me a bit um, mm-hmm. that this idea that, yes, we are, go- we are going, we have to be the vanguard of social reform, social improvement. Um, but, you know, because we're not so tempted by alcohol, we're not so tempted by violence, um, you know, we're not so brutal, uh, and also we can take or leave sex and, you know, th- th- they, mm-hmm. they have no choice. Um, therefore, it is, it, the women have to now become the, the, the prominent sex in society. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's- I mean, Queen there's Victoria embodies this, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, um, that's so interesting mm-hmm. how that, that, that flips and what the reasons are. And I wonder if it's, if it's rooted in religion or if it's rooted in, as you say, kind of comparisons against all of the other cultures that colonialists are mm-hmm. encountering and bare-breasted women in those places. And, you know, in India, the women are perceived to be still the ones who have the, the um, more active libido and the men are still seen as the taming ones. And that, that hasn't flipped as far as I know, or at least not recently. And so, um, so it's a very Western thing now to have this perception, but where that came from that women are the tamers and, I don't know, but it's um, it's definitely fascinating, yeah, mm-hmm. and problematic um, because I I think of you know Susan B. Anthony and those women you were talking about you know Crystal during that period um, of women's movement and suffrage movement that um, you know you had to be an upper class white woman mm-hmm. if you were going to mm-hmm. be able to say I want to be chased mm-hmm. you know you had to have a means and I don't even know how you could because women couldn't really have property for so long so it wasn't even an option so it's yeah. it's a very classist and racist in, in that way sense of of what you could do what could be possible so that ideal and what it maybe offered you was open to so few women you know mm-hmm. um and of yeah. course those were the women who were part of the um these social movements you know temperance mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. abolition and reform and they were the ones who really um got rid of all the red light districts um mm-hmm. throughout, yeah. throughout the country in 1917 1918 really completely shut those down and so you know that Paul plays into it too which is so fascinating yeah, there's that, that um, book by Ann Douglas from, I guess it's been from the 80s, the 90s, The Feminization of American Culture. Yeah. Mm. It's certainly talking, talking about that and, and sort of, you know, the downside of, of, the, of the female influence. I think for sure it's also class. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this, sure. this moral superiority that's, that's yeah. natural is also kind of natural to, natural to one class. Um, and the same women reformers who were, you know, going to, you know, break down the, um, the bars and break down the barriers to, the, you know, the drinking bars and the bars against women's participation and the houses of prostitution um, found it hard to believe that working, working class women um, could be saved. And they did try, um, but they're, you know, have these very strange, um, you know, very hard to read descriptions of, you know, almost viewing them as like these, you know, strange creatures from, you know, from another planet. Um, who, you know, have so many children and, and who drink and, you know, so on. Yeah. But it seems so interesting to me that that's a flip 
from a century before, when you talk about the novels about Clarissa and Pamela, how mm. there it's the middle class women who had the virtue and the elite aristocracy and the men who were who are awful, you know, and horrible and not following any rules. And then it's almost like by the time you get Victoria, you know, coming along and growing up. Now the elite have taken back the moral virtue and su superior position, and it's the lower classes, you know? So it's so fascinating to try to understand all the other moving parts that cause such a flip, you know, philosophically about the essential natures, you know, of, of those classes as well as genders, you know? It's very complicated. But before we... Um, delve into that because that would be another whole podcast I'm sure we want to move forward again into uh, into pop culture and and talk about the reference to chastity that you bring up and I'm also curious as to your thoughts on the words chastity versus celibacy because I always think of a Catholic priest as being celibate and I think of chastity when I, I think more of women so at, at some point I'll I'll ask if you can comment on that but but when we're when the, you're talking in the book about chastity and the pop culture references, you mentioned two of my favorite series that I've watched mm -hmm. both of, which is Jane the Virgin and then mm -hmm. Fleabag. And um, in both cases, you know, Jane is such a likable character, and and you know, Fleabag has got so many issues that character. But then in season two, you get the hot priest, you know, and he is beloved by everybody and everyone's hoping that they end up together and spoiler alert, if you haven't finished it, you know, he chooses after a brief, you know, um, divergence to, to remain um, chaste, you know, and stay in celibate, stay devoted um, to his vows um, to be a priest and um, to his vows to God. So, so I, I love how you kind of say, you know, has chastity become sort of sexy again? Um, anyway, so I'd, I'd love for you to, to comment on, on the ways in which we see those aspects. You didn't bring up the 40-year-old virgin, um, and I'm not sure if that was um, just something you couldn't work in or if it was not as interesting or, or counter to something. Yeah, it probably is a problem for me. Um, <laughs> no, but I, I'm, ha I'm happy to, you know, to, to, you know, take up the side of Evander Scott. Um, the motives for, you know, making a character as sympathetic um, as that, I, mean, I think it's been almost impossible uh, to get a positive portrayal of, you know, of a Catholic priest in, in, in popular culture. I mean, you know, you'd have to go back to Graham Greene or, you know, maybe some, some French <laughs> movies of, of the 1950s. Um, but, you know, the, the automatic uh, impression of a sexual um, priest who nonetheless, you know, has taken a vow of chastity is, is a hypocrite um, yeah. or, you know, or a pervert yes. um, or taking advantage of children or take, yes. you know, taking advantage of everyone. Um, to make a priest whom we can believe in, uh, who is, you know, genuinely sharing his his affections um, with people he comes into contact with. I mean, that's sort of one of the original justifications for the celibate life is that, you know, you, you choose, if you choose to invest um, your love in, in an ex, you know, exclusive beloved, um, you are taking it away from the rest of the world. So one imagines, you know, Jesus uh, is a bit like that. He doesn't make a song and dance about chastity, but, you know, he's, he's there, you know, he can't play favorites. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, you know, that should be um, of the of the formation and vocation of, of a priest um, to acknowledge your own sexual makeup 
um, your, you know, your own attraction um, as, you know, as clearly humanizing the character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, whether it's going to start a trend of, um, you know, complex, um, erotically interesting, but chaste figures of, of my kind of, you know, Diana and Elizabeth sort. Right. Um, I'd be surprised, um, but, you know, other things have happened. Um, I think there are ways in which um, marriage has become, you know, far too compromised an institution um, that, you know, it would make sense for me to, to, to find people rejecting it again, as, as indeed it was rejected in, you know, kind of earliest, earlier socialist um, periods. Um, but choosing celibacy for the sake of God, uh, I, I'm afraid that is, I don't know if I'm afraid, it is on the way out. Yeah. Um, do you think it's harder to to recruit? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think the priesthood? I mean, this a whole idea of priests remaining celibate in the Catholic mm. Church. I mean, I don't think anyone else is doing that in any other yeah. religions. I mean, yeah. you talked a little bit about Muslim and Hebrew faiths, and yeah. and this yeah. whole extreme to which yeah. we persist in having nuns, but then the priesthood with all the power being mm. celibate. I mean, you said all the problems you, you brought up earlier, but we, on top of that, just lay out, how can you even relate to my life as, as a person who's not celibate, who is married? How would you even know how to counsel or help me or whatever? So, I mean, do you, do you think the Catholic church will finally get with it and be like, this was a bad idea? <laughs> it, it was never... <laughs> It was never a good idea. I mean, I'm going to defend, you know, the heroism, <laughs> sort of spiritual athleticism of the, of the, you know, but it was only for the few. So if you have a vocation to renounce sexuality, like you have a vocation to kind of sit on a pillar for 40 years or, you know, only to drink water, you know, fine. You know, it would be interesting to see what you do with it. There's, right. there's a room for, you know, extreme charismatics or, you know, of, of any sort. Um, but to make that the office, um, you know, the pastoral role, which is super important uh, to be, you know, the kind of mediator and representative um, and to deny that person, you know, a role in human, you know, an important role in human life. Dis it does seem to me a mistake. It's a mistake the Eastern church didn't make. Right, um, so right. Eastern Orthodoxy, the very higher levels of the, of the you know, hierarchy um, are celibate, but, but not, you know, not the other priests. Uh, in other religious traditions, sometimes you have an, an um, you know, periods of separation, um, particularly at the end of life, um, you know, where, you know, somebody says, now I'm going to have, you know, a life devoted to, to prayer and meditation and wandering and poverty, and I'll leave my family, you know, goodbye. Uh, I can see that. Mm. Uh, but, mm -hmm. but for, as you say, to, to remain in the world, uh, but to be a reminder of something beyond the world, um, and then to have no knowledge uh, of the responsibilities and obligations and pains of, say, parenthood, um, you know, something like I think that was the church's mistake. Um, and Luther they should have, yeah, they should have kept the monks and gotten yeah. rid of the celibacy for the priests, right? Like you're saying, there's a place That's for those. Ball. And I think there's something we can learn and admire and aspire. Like, I mean, we have these Buddhist monks. Good. Yay. Great. But they're not the ones every day that we're going to, to listen to who are, and you don't want to trust your children or your children's education or things again to people who end up being a place where sexual predators can go and hide, you know, and which we've seen, unfortunately, and it's probably been that way for centuries and centuries, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And they've, they've just denied that issue. It just seems it's overdue. Um, 
and I guess I'll stop it there because mm-hmm. we don't want to, we don't want to lose any, any, uh, any members of the who are listeners. You just said there's a certain, certain confusion or contradiction. I'll, 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 I'll take it to the Pope. Yeah. Um, it, it certainly was not on the cards um, that celibacy would become the rule, you know, the, the, the only option. I think there, you know, for many centuries or a number of centuries, they were all different, um, you know, possibilities, you know, different ways of organizing these things. And, you know, St. Augustine, who's always taken to be, you know, our main, the, the, the founding father of, of our preoccupation, you know, with original sin and, and, and um, anxiety about chastity, he knew very well <laughs> what, what lust was like. I mean, he knew it was complicated. He knew it, it kind of had much to power over him. I think you can, you know, you can believe in someone like that. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. But the, the the hypocrisy and the the double think no it 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 is problematic so let's just go ahead and bring it to the present a little bit more as well and discuss the modern movement of chastity chastity um, can you tell us about this and and do you think that chastity is still pre- prevalent and or at least you know as you look through your book and look through the timeline in your book, as you were writing your book, do you think chastity is just as prevalent today as it was through time? No, I mean, I would, my first impulse would certainly to be saying that, to say no. And I guess in the way I was telling the story, I thought chastity, um, you know, went into, you know, serious decline. Um, well, initially after least in the West after the Reformation and then in the, you know, the, the bourgeois period that we were talking about, one of the polarized um, gender, you know, identities. Um, preoccupation though with female chastity, yeah, uh, I'm afraid so, um, that, hasn't, that hasn't gone away. Um, right. The justification for it um, still, you know, is, is, is deeply um, bothering to me um, because it does seem to be part of, you know, the same view that, that women really only get their value and their excellence from being part of a family, uh, from being, you know, the sexual property of a man or, or you know, whether husband or father or brother. Um, and that, you know, if, if this is my virtue that I, you know, spend a bit of time with, I'm, I'm, I'm distressed that it gets, you know, it gets associated um, with, you know, with, with that kind of um, compromised view of, of, you know, um, human identity, the, the idea that women uh, are never going to have this, you know, the same uh, rights and, and possibilities as men, you know, that, that's, that's not hard to say. Um, on the other hand, I have, you know, certainly, I don't know that I've spoken to women who have, um, you know, embraced um, the marital chastity of, of the type I've described and, and say that they find this, you know, enabling in all sorts of ways um, and, and, gives them a, a kind of respect that they think they would otherwise lose. Um, I think I'd have to know more about that um, before I, I continue being dismissive. Um, but I'd rather save chastity uh, for this, you know, extreme, um, you know, kind of, let's say, you know, sort of freak, um, um, but very, uh, um, you know, mysterious identity of trying to be not human, perhaps, not natural, mm-hmm. um, not integrated into society. Um, and to me, that makes the, you know, the kind of social uses of chastity uh, always something to worry about. You know, I, I, I don't you know, really see how I personally could, could ever find um, accommodation with them. 
I, I think it's it's certainly less in the societies that I've lived in um, than it must have been in the past. Um, but I don't think it's it's reign is over now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So we don't expect we'll see a, a new wave of um, lifelong chastity, shall we say, not just virginity mm-hmm. yeah, and marriage. You know, yeah. for for particular reasons that maybe we can't foresee. I mean, certainly we've had a a, a, a go at it with Christianity in particular in certain religions, but um, it does always seem that it offers for people not just, I mean, there's that one idea of the, of the sort of the getting past the human body aspect mm-hmm. into, into a higher realm, but in so many other ways, just that I think of anthropologically as we talk like this one, it just offers a, a different alternative mm-hmm. life that you couldn't otherwise have yeah gender bound because you are as a human, not just embedded in your body with those desires, but you're stuck within that social and political, you know, system that you are find yourself in. And it seems sometimes that chastity is coupled with other freedoms or rights, you know, in a very interesting way. Um, and, and with that, we just, we just want to finish by acknowledging, you know, in, in terms of, of women and chastity and, and overall just women's control over their bodies and reproduction, just what has recently been passed into law in Texas. And then the, as we mentioned just before we started actually recording that there's a, this sort of sexual protest, this women who decide they wanna be chased in protest of this law being passed and, and just any thoughts you have uh, on that. Yeah, well, that, that, I mean, that's that's very exciting to me. I mean, both, you know, depressing, um, and I think, you know, everybody saw it coming. That you know, they, it was not there was the the movement against reproductive rights was not giving way. Um, so, you know, this, this doesn't doesn't surprise me. Uh, but I am surprised by by you know what seems to me uh, a very kind of uh, logical and 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 striking reapplication of of the power of chastity yeah you know the sexual strike and also saying this is a way uh, i'm not going to buy into this script um there are others um you know within the feminist movement of you know separatist feminists who also said you know you can't have integrity um you can't have you know kind of a political future um if you still have to compromise with men if you still have to you know, become members of, of a kind of small community that includes them. I mean, that, you know, there is a certain logic to it, um, a way to try to sever, um, you know, the, the path to self-determination uh, from uh, kind of the, the, this shared, you know, you know, sexual condition, social condition. Um, in that sense, no, I, I think there's, there's a lot of precedent um, for that, so sexual strike. Um, and I, you know, I think it may lead to others. And I think, I think, um, hmm. There's, there's a lot of kind of philosophical weight in it. Let's put it that mm. way. I, think, I think Plato would have approved. <laughs> um, <laughs> whether it's going to, to shake anything up, uh, I don't know. Uh, but if, you know, if, if, you know, young brides sort of, you know, tear up their wedding ring, um, I don't know if you can tear up your wedding ring. My, my son's just gotten married. so <laughs> <laughs> uh, You can say like, yes, you don't, I mean, this is this is the theme of of, of Turandot and you know a number of heroines through history. Um, you've got to do better if you think you're going to get me, um, you know, yeah, um, to say this to the society, you know, at large, to the sort of um, 
you know, the, the, the reactionary movement that, that's, that's happening and that's gaining force. Like, no, we're going to, you know, deny you sexual access, deny you conjugal access. It'd be, you know, fascinating mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and possible. Yeah. Very interesting. It's very complicated because for women to control their sexuality, that means they also want to, and their bodies, they want, that also means controlling reproduction and they want the full rights to that. And for men, it's just right. not the same. It's mm-hmm. never going to be the same. And yeah. the government should just get out of it, you know, just get out <laughs> of it because I can just say anthropologically, historically speaking, every society has had ways to deal with unwanted pregnancies. It's not, you know, to, to put this moral weight on it, that the whole society is unjust and to put that burden on women in particular is, is um, just something that here at Extreme History, we see that the long issue that's had <laughs> for women um, in creating unjust. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So we'll leave that there, but yeah. Elizabeth, this is a fascinating book and you've, you've provided a whole new um, vision on it uh, for us and taken us through such a really interesting path um, from antiquity to the present. And um, we're really grateful that you could come on today and discuss it with us. Thank you. Well, I feel I represent <laughs> thousands of years of versions. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a lot of weight to carry. Yeah, yeah. Some of them wrote. <laughs> okay. It's been a pleasure talking to you and, you know, very um, impressed by, by the work you do and the, the sophistication of, of, these, of the podcasts. Um, I want to put some of my colleagues onto them. I have, I have uh, colleagues who work between, I'm in, I'm in a department which is a mixture of history, sociology, anthropology, philosophy, psychology. Um, and I have some wonderful colleagues who, who work in archaeology um, and also do contemporary anthropology and history. So I'm, you know, really struck um, by, you know, the kind of uh, reach that, that, you've, you know, that you've developed. Um, well, if any of them are half as interesting as you, Elizabeth, yeah. send them our way. We'd yeah. love to <laughs> interview them as well. Oh, I will. I will. Yeah, you should know about them. Okay, so yeah. I will email you <laughs> and talk them in. Well, that's okay. okay. Very good. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. I got, and, I got, some, and, I got some targets. Okay, yes, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Yeah, and, you know, I think that if anyone out there has the opportunity to read this book, they definitely should. Yep. Um, it's available anywhere. It's in bookstores. It's online. You can get it. Um, at the University of Chicago Press is the publisher. So if you go to their website, you can definitely find it there. And the name again is The Chastity Plot. Thank you, Elizabeth. And thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please tell a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up in your podcast feed each week. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past. So make sure to find it and like it. We put links to all our podcast episodes, but we also include links to articles and the book like The Chastity Plot and other um, things that we discuss during the podcast interview. So thanks for listening today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt Dirt on the Past. A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin. And thanks to Lawson Alegria for the music and John Chadwell for help getting the podcast out into the world.